On September 11, 2001, 19 terrorists hijacked four planes and proceeded to carry out the most devastating terrorist attack in American history. Two of these planes were flown into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. A third plane hit the Pentagon outside Washington, D.C. A fourth plane crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Almost 3,000 people died during the attacks. And while things have improved for us since then, we've never quite been the same. I'm Chef Marcus Samson, one half of this moment. And this week, it's a very personal story for all of us, but for me, and I want to bring in a very dear friend of mine, Chef Michael Lamonaco. He was the head chef at Windows of the World, the restaurant, the World Trade Center. And today, in honor of the 20th anniversary, we thought it would be important for Michael to share his story, his personal story of what happened that day. It's Chef Michael Lamonaco. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This year, this week, is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And um, a little background on it for me. I was just a young chef coming up in New York City. And Chef Michael was kind enough to allow me and my team to cook at the towers the weekend before. So late August, early September, 2001, and Chef had been just as gracious as always and allowed me and the crew to come in there and cook. So with that, I'm saying, welcome to this moment, Chef. How are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate actually that you reminded me of that event, that dinner we did together. Uh, it was really fabulous. It was, it was a great evening. A great memory that I'm glad you reminded me of. I, I didn't remember it was the weekend before. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, so much has transpired uh, that actually to have that memory back, I appreciate that. Thank you, Marcus. And you worked at Le Cirque and you, you worked in some amazing homes, uh, 21 Club. You worked at some amazing places in New York City, really like iconic sort of like. But I think it all prepared you to be the chef at Windows of the World. Can you just through a little bit of numbers, right? Because this is 20 years ago. I think it was the busiest restaurant in New York City, if not the country. Tell us a little bit about the restaurant at Windows of the World. Well, Windows on the World opened in 1976. Joe Baum, who really 
was a, and remains a hero to me as a restaurateur and a creative uh, force in, in our industry. Um, by time 2001 came around, and, and just, so I went to work at Windows in 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had been closed from the bombing of 1993. They were closed right. for three years. Uh, the, first, the first attack on the World Trade Center uh, was 1993. And then in 1996, they reopened. And uh, in 1997, Joe Baum and David Emile, who were the co-owners of the, rest of the, the complex, really, um, asked if I would come and join them and kind of reconceive what they had conceived a year earlier. So we were on two floors, the 106th and 107th floor, and we had, uh, we had 450 people who worked there. Wow. We were open seven days a week. Uh, we were open seven days a week. Really, breakfast was served Monday through Friday because we had a private club, the World Trade Center Club. So we served that club breakfast and lunch every day. And we served dinner seven nights a week. We had Windows on the World, the restaurant. We had the greatest bar on earth, which is what it was called, which was which seated 350 people. And it was a live music venue. And we had sushi and we had grilled foods and bar foods. And, and then we had a, a huge catering complex that took up a number of rooms on both floors and we also had the small little boutique cellar in the sky, which uh, was very famous. And, and in fact, that was something that attracted me as a young actor to Windows on the World as a sort of an iconic restaurant. And um, we converted that into um, a Wild Blue, which was an American chop house and not dissimilar to things that I've done since, including mm-hmm. Porterhouse Bar and Grill. So. With 450 people, Marcus, they came from all over the world. And I'm sure you met people on your visit there. Um, I'm sure you met people who who worked with us from uh, the continent, from the African continent. We had people from the far, from every continent. We had 65 languages spoken. They were the magic element in making Windows on the World even more special than anything else about it. Mm-hmm. It's always about the people, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's always about the people and well, the I, relationships. I wanted, to, I wanted to ask that question so people understand that you literally, you run a city within a city, basically. That building is a city, with, it's a village within the city because when you have that many people, just think about the logistics. You have to get the food, then you have to get the food up to 106 and 107 floor, and then uh, all the different touches and logistics. And that wouldn't work without being a great people person and the love, respect for different nationalities. And that's why I think about every time you came to Windows, it was huge, but you always made it feel small, right? Like I, I never felt. Not until you stop work and you look at that incredible view where you can basically see to, you know, Ohio and, and Pennsylvania and <laughs> Connecticut, depending on where you look at it from, right? But, but you, it never felt as big because you, you, you come, 
whether you take the subway or however you get there, and then the towers are just humongous, right? But once you're in there, you guys made it feel like it was the neighborhood restaurant. And obviously it wasn't, but you, you, you made it feel like that. I think that that is uh, such a kind thing to say because as a chef, uh, you, you know this better than anybody because your personal touch, your personal touch is what inspires the people around you to have that warmth and to offer that kindness to total strangers, make them feel like old friends and greet them warmly. It's, it's the most important part of the, of the sort of the transactional experience of going to a restaurant is how they take you into the restaurant. Yeah. And so when you went to Windows on the World, the first thing you did was you had to go take the elevator and there was a greeter, one or two people who greeted you. And their greeting was the probably the most important thing that was happening for us that evening as a, as a, as a restaurant. How they greeted you, how they welcomed you into the elevator, sending you up to the next stop, which was the 107th floor, for instance, where the restaurant was. And then you were greeted again. Uh, it, it always it always mattered to us. I think that it was it was an unsaid part of the experience that the the conviviality that we could share with each other as co-workers, yeah, and there were four hundred and fifty of us, that conviviality was conveyed to the guest. And honestly, that's one of the things that in my time, my four years there, and in all of these years that have passed that I miss the most. Yeah. I miss my friends, of course, those we lost, but I also miss that we were once this, uh, I hate the word restaurant family, but we were certainly a cohesive mm -hmm. operation where everyone had a connection to each other and people stopped and said hello to each other in the yeah. hallways. And, you know, That's we great. had, we went 24 hours a day we had 24 people on our overnight cleaning crew. Yeah, yeah. Think about so that. it went 24 hours a day. The first cooks were in at 5 a.m. Yeah. The last cooks went home at 1, maybe yeah. 1 2 o'clock in the morning after late seatings in the restaurant. And um, eventually the clouds come and rain forms and the guests lose the view and what they're left with are the people. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, can I ask you, because uh, I know you've been asked this a lot, but I, I want our listeners to really, that day, that day, 9-11, why weren't you, it was a Tuesday, so why weren't you in the building that day? Tell me that, because that's just the serendipity of life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who knows luck better than us, right? Luck, you know, a lucky moment. We look back on it. You know, people have asked, how do you see that? I see it as just pure luck, my, my good fortune. You know, on, on that, my, my schedule in those days, and it's not that different now, but I, um, because we had club members, and the club members uh, were, came from both, basically all over the world. People joined that club to be able, but there were business it was it was business people from Lower Manhattan. It was all mm -hmm. kinds of people, but they were using the club as a place to have breakfast or lunch. So I I made it a point to be there 
when we were serving. We were serving yeah. breakfast, we were serving lunch. So I would arrive at eight o'clock, 8.30 in the morning yeah. and work typical chef hours, work yeah. straight through till 10, 10.30, yeah. Yeah. 11 o'clock at night. I needed to get my, my reading glasses repaired. I, I had an appointment for that day at 12 noon to get my glasses repaired. But it was, it was a primary election day in New York City that day. And um, it was, there was no traffic. Uh, it was a very quiet morning all around. And when I arrived and, and I walked into the, the concourse level, which was a shopping center that sat at the base of the two buildings, the concourse level, the two buildings rose from the concourse level. The elevators were, you know, within walking distance from where I was. I, would, I walked into the concourse and I walked past the very eyeglass shop that I was going to go to at 12 noon. And I looked at my watch, Marcus, and I said, it's, it's eight o'clock. Why don't I get my glasses fixed now or at least turn them in so they could fix the lens and then I don't have to leave work. I can stay and do what I have to do. So rather than go to the elevator to go up to the kitchen, I went into the lens crafter shop and they wow. said, sure, we, we can take you. We, we can do it right now. Sure. And that's where I was when the first building, when my building, the North Tower, was struck by the first plane. So now we're about, it's about eight o'clock, the, the first Tower, the tower is getting tech, what, 8.15 around that time? No, no. So it was 8.43. Yeah. So you have to imagine they welcomed me at the eyeglass shop. Then they examined me. They did an exam. Then we looked at other eye frames. And then the doctor talked to me. And they, by the time they finished all this, I was still sitting in the optometrist chair with the optometrist talking to him about my prescription when I felt the building shake, wow. I felt the vibration of the first plane. So Marcus, imagine behind me, sitting where I was in the concourse level, the number one train passes below ground right there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a native New Yorker, so I knew there's a subway line behind me. Yeah literally feet away in terms of the geography of where I was sitting. And I thought that that can't possibly be the subway train. What could that be? And as I was sitting there kind of trying to figure out what that was, the lights went out. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was an emergency light that went on where I was sitting. The lights went out. And then really within 60 seconds, 90 seconds, they started to evacuate the concourse level. And someone came running into the examining room and said, they, they're evacuating the building, we have to get out of here. Wow. So I picked myself up. I left my glasses behind. <laughs> they were sitting on the table. And I thought, once I got outside, I thought, well, I can go back later and get them. Sure. I, I'll go back later. And when, we, when I got out into the concourse level, the shopping level, see, that was below grade, below ground level. 
There were security guards, there were people with flashlights, and they were directing people to the exits. So yeah. they directed me out to Liberty Street. So for your listeners, Liberty Street is south. It's on the south side of the complex. And that's where tower number two is on Liberty Street, or was, I should say. Mm -hmm. So I still, I had no idea what had happened. When I got out onto the street, the sky was littered with paper, paper, like confetti. There was so much paper showering onto the street. Wow. And as I looked out onto the street, not having any sense of what had happened, there was a fire engine on the street. And that was what I considered our fire engine because there was a firehouse right there, number 10. Yeah, sure, sure. And I knew those guys because they used to come up and do inspections at the restaurant. Sure. You know, I knew that, that, fire, that fire department unit and they were out on the street and they were looking up. And I looked on the street and uh, Marcus, I saw debris that was as big as a car. And I didn't quite how the mind works. I couldn't quite understand what it was, but it was part of the fuselage of that first plane. And I didn't, you know, the, the phrase is does not compute. It just did yeah. not make yeah. sense. And everyone on the street was in the same sense of confusion, in the sense of what, what had just happened. And, and what was, I mean, did people then already said that we've been attacked? or Because I'm total chaos in the street. Right? What was the mood? What was that? What was happening in the street around you? So this is before even the police have arrived. This is yeah. before any fire units have arrived, except for number 10 that was there. And um, I walked to the corner and that's Church Street. And there's a green market. We had a green market there. The same green market folks from Union Square Green Market sure. came on, they came on Tuesday mornings to the World Trade Center. And I used to buy produce from them. Yeah. Tuesdays and Fridays, they would get to us. And I used to buy my local produce from those very people. And they were packing up. Instead of unpacking, they were packing yeah, up. They were going, and, getting out of here. Yeah. And as I looked up at tower number one, the North Tower, that's where, West, that's, that's where Windows on the World was, in the North Tower. And as I looked up on the facade, I saw, I saw some damage, but not a lot of damage, and, but smoke, smoke billowing. I had no idea what had happened. No one at, at that point knew what had happened. So I went to find a phone because my cell phone wasn't working. I started to do a mental calculation. Who's working this morning? Who's on the yeah. shift today? Mm -hmm. Who opened? Who's in the kitchen? Who's in the dining room? What chefs are working? What cooks are working this morning? Usually that would be, I knew we had a banquet. We had a banquet breakfast yeah. that morning. We had a hundred people in the banquet, in one of the banquet rooms for a breakfast that morning. So I knew the banquet team was there, the morning team. And I went to go find a phone. I literally, I ran to find a phone and I did get to Wall Street a few streets away and I found a pay phone and I called my wife, Diane. Diane worked about a mile away, north of this. She could 
almost see this from her office. I called my boss. I called the owner of the restaurant. I said, you better turn your TV on. Something has happened. I don't know what's happened, but I'm outside. That's what I told Diane as well. I'm outside. I don't know what's happened, but I'm going back. I'm going to go back to the building now and see if I can help at the ground level in any way. See if I can help. Because what came to mind was 1993, and you must have seen photographs of people streaming out of the building with smoke, with their faces covered with soot. Wow. And around that time, that's basically when the second tower gets hit. When you gather all of that, right? Then it's, so, so just what happens after that, Michael? You are exactly, exactly right. Because as I was walking back, People are talking on the street. People are trying, you know, everyone's in sort of chaos, as you said. And, and Marcus, they're, they're talking to each other. And, and, and someone said, a plane hit the building. A plane hit the building? Yeah. How, how is that possible? <clears throat> I can't even imagine that. I was walking back down Liberty Street. I was walking back down Liberty Street I was, and and tower number two was directly in front of me. I was about a block away when I heard the roar of the second plane. And again, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine what that sound was, but it was a, it was a, a, the roar of jet engines was overwhelming. It was so loud and I heard the roar. And as I heard it, I looked up at the same moment that the second plane hit tower number two, and I saw the explosion, the huge explosion of the fireball of tower number two being struck. Now I knew we're under attack. This is an attack. And the shock was overwhelming uh, that I, I, I became emotional on the street. Yeah. I was there, emotional. Now for the lives that I just witnessed being lost, with the second plane's impact. Now I understood what had happened to tower number one. It was a plane. It wasn't a small plane. It wasn't an accident. This mm-hmm. is an attack. Someone grabbed my arm. A total stranger grabbed me and they, they said, come on. And they tried to pull me into a building, a building that I was standing next to. And they said to come inside for safety. And I said, no, 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 thank you. I, and, I, and I didn't want to go into another building. Yeah, I wanted to stay in the street. But rather than go towards the towers, I walked north towards City Hall. Yeah. Um, uh, why? I wanted to get to the north side of my building, tower number one. I wanted to get to the north side. I wanted to see what had happened. I wanted to understand what had happened. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Can I ask you, Michael, like, it's only 20 years ago, but the conversation around mental health was not the same as it is today. How did you and your wife stay, just make sure that you, because for a chef to lose his or her team or part of the team, we've we've never had an event like this ever in New York City. And every community is hit different, but for, for a restaurant leader, for a chef, losing 20, 30 people, some, whatever the number is, it's so unimaginable. It's so in. It's it's so unfair and insane. How did you deal with all of that? Because it's it's. I know it's a big question, but like, how did you just move on eventually? Well, you know, you're you're very right that uh, I I don't know if there's an a, a simple answer, but. First of all, as a, as a human, I was so devastated by the loss of 72 people that I knew. Uh, it was, it, it, it had a major impact on me. It had a, um, you know, I was so lucky that I was not up there. I was moments away from heading to the elevator. I was finished with my appointment. I would have been in that elevator five minutes from that moment. And uh, it just was my, it was my good luck. But but the incredible loss uh, is still processing. You know, yeah. the idea of losing people we know, uh, we never forget them. We try to remember them. Uh, and we try to remember them with the good memories and not the painful memories. I mean, it's better to, it's better to remember who they were and what they were rather than the tragedy of their loss. You know, remembering the goodness of people, yeah. remembering, you know, remembering the good things is actually very helpful for helping us transition through grief. Yeah. And, and, you know, those, those seven stages of grief uh, are, are very, very much something that we need to work through. So as an individual, um, I had a lot of uh, support from my family. Uh, that, is, uh, that is really the truth. Uh, I have older brothers with families. I have nieces. Uh, 
I have nephew. Uh, I had a family who was really ready to help and support me. Um, my brothers were here. One lived in Arizona at the time, and he was flying in almost every other weekend to spend time with us. Yeah. Uh, my brother, you know, as as a family, we were. But also, um, we have mental health uh, doctors in my family. My brother is a psychiatrist. Okay. My niece is a psychiatrist. We spoke openly of of the need to be able to work through these things. And I, I you know, I sought. Uh, I, I I had a mental. I was. I had a, a mental health practitioner. I had a doctor that I was able to see, and someone that I was able to talk to on a real level, to be able to really speak frankly and openly. And you know, this idea of being able to talk about it, talking yeah. is what we need to do. We need to communicate our pain. We need to allow others to help us. In order to help ourselves, we need to allow people in. So I was able to do that. But I, I have to tell you, the most important thing that I did, I think, to help myself, because all I could do was, if, if I don't help myself, I can't help others. Yep. Within days of 9-11, um, there were a group of us, a few other chefs, uh, we sat down together and we created the idea that we would start a fundraiser, restaurants, chefs, we were always asked to yeah. help others. Uh, we put together a foundation, uh, Windows of Hope Family Relief Fund. And that fund was embraced by the restaurant world in New York. As you know, you were there. Yeah. You were part of it. Yeah. So you and our colleagues around the city and then other restaurant colleagues from around the country and around the world, Japan, Spain, Latin America, Morocco, Egypt, Japan, um, Switzerland, Italy, Spain, England, from all over the world, restaurants worked to try to raise funds for our, yeah. for our family members, for those family members who had lost someone that day for the food service workers who were lost. So trying to help them was also a way of trying to help ourselves, myself, work our way through this because yeah. surely their loss was greater than mine. But it, it, this is fascinating, right? So I always say in my life, being adopted, the amount of luck that you, you are going back to that village and you ask yourself, out of all the kids here, how did me and my sister get adopted? I mean, let's talk about, you know, tons of kids. Uh, we had tuberculosis, we got into a hospital, and once again, they picked us out of all the kids, right? So when you talk about luck, where you, the fact that you went into the eye doctor's office that morning, right? And didn't even have the eight o'clock time, but like you... As chefs, we always think about how can I buy more time from the minute you leave the house. Yes. You're going. Yes. Right? And here's a chance for me to buy 45 minutes of whatever it was. Right? Yes. You know, <clears throat> looking at the clock and, and so on. Right. And I know also you were I remember you told me this before that your wife kind of been on you. You got to go. My, you got to go, man. I'm booking a time for you because that day it could have been a year ago or something like that. You were supposed to be there, in there earlier, too. Right. So there's so many this different things leading up to that day. Right. 
So I, I, I think we share that in terms of luck and also coming back with gratitude, right? Like I've always thought about being adopted. I'm going to make sure that this moment that my parents gave me, that I'm going to show them gratitude. So I'm going to strive to show gratitude once I meet other people, right? It doesn't always work, but it's very important to me to share that, right? The second part is during this pandemic, I thought a lot about 9-11. I thought about it in almost in a talking to myself. Well, I, I remember trying to not have the same experience at all as yours, but how do you operate a restaurant after 9-11, right? Who cares about going to, it's not even important anymore, right? So when the pandemic happened, I had to go back in my head. Well, if I could manage that, I know I have some strength in me that I know we can manage ourselves through this moment. So the navigation and, and you talk about community, you guys started a foundation that became very meaningful. Even in this moment, there was a foundation <clears throat> because of independent restaurant coalition that was started out of right. the pandemic, right? So who are we as chefs? We go back to our communities, right? And we have each other's and I, it's, it's still something as a New Yorker, you know, that, you know, once you enter the Wall Street area, which is really where the towers are, were, I, you cannot not think about it. Like it doesn't enter. Did it take you a long time to go, to go back down there? Did you stay away? Like what was the emotions with this part of town, which is obviously such an important part town of New York City for you and your family? Well, that, that is, um, you know, that's an, a, a very, that's a very um, insightful and sensitive question, really. Mm-hmm. You know, we started the foundation to help the families of the food service workers who were lost. Okay, so there were 72 at Windows we had six construction workers. We had one security guard, 79 people in windows. There were other food service facilities in the building, uh, a law firm that had people who made breakfast or lunch for them, a hot dog vendor on the street. There were, seven, there were 102 food service workers who were lost. They have 250 family members. Mm-hmm. So what we could do for them was more important than however I was feeling. So that did help me to process my own pain, grief. And the only thing I know how to do is cook. And what they were doing was they were cooking and serving and cleaning and working in the service of others. So it was at that moment, honest, where I felt the need to dedicate the work I do to the memory of my lost friends. This is what they were doing on that morning. So in a silent prayer every day, it's part of my, it's part of my daily rising. I get up to go to work in memory of my friends. I've never forgotten that. It's, a, it's something I've kept. So the gratitude never goes. It's important that we try to take care of others, that we try to help others. And I think that we both understand. I mean, I came from a very humble background. I grew up in Brooklyn. 
my father was a barber, you know, an immigrant. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a first generation. I'm a child of immigrants. Uh, this is this is this is how the dream is made. How yeah. can I help others achieve their dream? Yeah. You know what what can I do? So there was a scholarship segment to the foundation that has helped people go to school all these years, yeah. and that is probably the thing that has given me more satisfaction. At the very beginning, in getting to your question. It's difficult for me to look at the new tower, the World Trade yeah, Center. Sure. It, it's not easy. I, I went down, um, all of us were doing some volunteer work. I went down to a kitchen that was on Canal Street, a restaurant. They were serving meals to the first responders. And I went down there a number of times to cook and to bring ingredients that other people could cook. And we were feeding first responders in the restaurant. And um, so that was how I got closer. Yeah. And um, I went, I was heartbroken, emotionally ravaged by this in the early days. And you could go, <clears throat> you could go, uh, you know, you could go as, as close as you could get to the pile uh, once they opened the streets again. See, because it was closed to, to anyone, but you know, they, they, they closed off a cordoned off an area much larger than the, than the site. So I wasn't able to get there. But there came a point several months later where they began to open streets. And for about a year, I went once a week to the chain link fence yeah. where they were working on the other side, clearing the pile. And I went, I'm not that spiritual, but I have to believe that there's something bigger than me. Uh, and I went and prayed once a week for those who were lost, all those who were lost. But then I was able to name my friends by name. And, and so this became sort of a part of my healing process. Yeah. Um, well, chef, chef, it, it's an, an it's an incredible story, and you humanize it. And as New Yorkers, we all have New Yorkers of a certain generation. Because I was actually speaking to a friend of mine and her son that is born in 2004. For him, it's just an event, right? And yes. it was almost a relief. Like I'm, and I was like, "Wow, you're right." If you like starting college today, it was just not, you know. It wasn't lived the same way, right? And that's also a way to look at it from like, we're, we're now 20 years away from this. And I just have to say, Michael, thank you so much for all you've done for the city as a chef, as a person. You're always one of the kindest guys in the room. You constantly thank you so make much. time for people. And uh, we also all, because this doesn't happen, right? You also rise again and have another incredible success and a very important part of New York City as well, right? With Porterhouse, about eight, nine years later, you start again and you open at, you know, you think about the Time Warner Center and eventually, obviously, Hudson Yards. But I know that all the people that come to the restaurant, most of the people, because some could be tourists too, they know you. And they are so excited for your success, right? 
Like you can't be in Time Warner building. And I was like, this is, this is Michael's house. This is Michael's house, you know what I mean? And we're all, cause there's other chefs in that building that we all know, but that with the CNN being there and everything, they, that was their cafeteria. And we're excited for you. And you. I do think that the city will always embrace you, Michael. And uh, you're part of, you're just part of our everyday in a different way. And it, it's just horrible that it was an event like that. But, but I wish you the best. And I thank you so much for sharing. And I will see you soon, Chef. And thank you for sharing. I know 9-11 is going to be a very, very difficult day for me. It happens to be on the same day as Ethiopian New Year, so there's always something positive by the end of the, <laughs> end of that. But I also take a lot of strength from that. You have moved, figured out the way to process this and turned it into um, part of who you are, but it's not something that you... I mean, you, you really make it, I shouldn't say positive, but you put it into dignity. Well, thank you, Marcus. I, I appreciate that so much. I appreciate you having me. Uh, you know, the 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 thing is, is is that I'm I'm a great admirer of yours, not just for your cooking, but for your humanity, your generosity, your your leadership, and the and the role that you've taken. That you've not. It's not easy to carry, but the the things that you've been able to teach others and give others, you know, people follow you and learn from you and you teach the next generation of leaders how to lead. And it's an honor for me to know you and be here with you today. And sharing love is something you do so well uh, that I'm in awe Thank of you. you. I appreciate you. Thank, Thank you. you. I will end on this. In every negative, hard situation, there is, I always try to figure out what could be, is there a flower of positivity? And uh, my dear friend, Raymond Mohan, that uh, worked at the tower, opened another restaurant a couple of years later with, with staff that used to work at the tower. And he met his wife at that restaurant. And they now have a very successful restaurant in Harlem called Lolo Seafood Shack and their family. So I was like, that is the one light <laughs> that I take. Yes. So, <laughs> I know yes. it's in there somewhere. I have to find it. And that's what I take out of that. <laughs> so, so anyway, I love you, Chef. And thank, thank you for sharing. And um, uh, you have a wonderful day. Okay. Thank you. I love you, Marcus. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Chef. So that was Chef Michael Monaco. I just want to say thank you so much, Chef, for sharing your story. I think your story is something that can help people to heal, help us to remember and honor the lives. And this is something that I've come back to so many times that day. I just want to share it with our dear listeners. Peace. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.